I recently had a chance to sit down with an artistic director of a fantastic theater, the kind of theater playwrights would die for. When you're a playwright like me, unrepresented, unproduced, pretty much all around on, opportunities like this are rare. The point is I was incredibly appreciative this person was giving me their time. And during our conversation, I was asked what I wanted to do in the theater. I told him something I had been mulling over for the past couple years and had been trying to maneuver my career toward. Now, I'm a playwright, so obviously I want to write plays and collaborate with people on the production of them. To be with people working on a play is everything. That's why most of us are in this. But that's not all for me. I have an innate need to, while I'm working on my own plays, to simultaneously help others. Call it advocacy, mentorship, collaboration, whatever. I feel unsatisfied. Maybe unsatisfied isn't the right word. Unfulfilled? Just un. It's a need. I need to have the balance of working on my stuff and helping other people work on their stuff. The help I'm talking about sometimes comes in the form of recommending their play, reading and commenting on plays, teaching young writers, producing plays, and so on. There are so many ways to do it. My point was, I feel a calling to do these things and not just silo myself with my work. This artistic director, who was acting out of a sense of generosity, told me, that was bullshit. They said I needed to be selfish if I ever wanted to stop being un- They said I should get a mundane day job as a barista and spend my time dreaming about my plays and then writing them when I wasn't at work. A self-centered approach to my career will move it along faster. Besides, they said, who the hell was I anyway? I had to become somebody in this industry before I could be of use to others. I don't think they were saying any of these things with malice. I really believe they were giving me some tough love and that's how I felt it at the time. Anyway, I thought a lot about what they said on my way home, and I mean, I get it? How am I ever to achieve anything without putting my head down and just doing the work? But I can't help thinking, there are 24 hours in a day. I can afford to spend a few here and there when the opportunity arises, helping out others. Sure, I might not be the most famous playwright in the world, but... What am I supposed to do when I hear somebody tell me they are looking for a specific play and I know this one person who just wrote it? I did try their advice recently. I was emailing with somebody who worked at a theater and they asked me if I had any plays to recommend to them for season consideration. I usually rattle off like four or five plays I love by people I admire when I get questions like this, but on this particular day, that artistic director was ringing in my ear. So... I sent one of my plays. I immediately felt icky and a little guilty because I knew of a couple other plays by other playwrights that might fit that company's mission. But I acted out of selfishness. And here I am a few weeks later and I'm still stuck on it. So I'm going back to the other way of doing things. It just feels right. Maybe I'm undermining my own career, but the truth is, if I make it, whatever that means, without boosting others along the way, I won't feel satisfied. And I think, in the end, I'd rather satisfaction than success.
the subtext. I am Brian James Polak. On this episode, I spent some time with Carlos Murillo, a playwright I have admired for years, but more on that in a second. First, the subtext is brought to you by American Theatre Magazine, a publication of Theatre Communications Group. If you like what you're hearing, please go to iTunes and click the little like button and leave a comment. It really helps get this podcast out there into the world. And if you're feeling super motivated, go ahead and tell your social media people all about it. And thank you to those who are already doing those things. It really does mean a lot to me. If you want more theater podcasting in your life, check out Three on the Isle, another American theater magazine podcast. But that one is with three legendary theater critics. Also be sure to check out Token Theater Friends, the video podcast where Deep Tran and Jose Solis discuss what's worth your theater dollars in New York theater. Okay. Carlos Murillo is a Chicago-based, internationally produced, and award-winning playwright of Colombian and Puerto Rican descent. He's a recipient of the 2015 Doris Duke Impact Award for his work in the theater. He also received a 2016 Mellon Foundation Playwright Residency at Adventure Stage in Chicago. His work has been widely produced throughout the United States and Europe. Carlos heads the BFA Playwriting Program at the Theater School of DePaul University and is an alumnus of New Dramatis. Now, one note before we get to our conversation. I was telling Carlos a story as I was setting up the recording equipment. I didn't record it, but it became a reference point to our conversation, and I think it's pretty relevant, so I feel like I should share it. I met Carlos at a crucial moment in my life, uh, and this encounter triggered a whole series of events playing out over several years that essentially led me to where I am today. When I just started writing plays back in 2007, I attended the Kennedy Center Summer Play Intensive, and Carlos was one of the guest instructors in attendance, and I vividly remember an exercise in character development he taught us. While he was there, his script, Dark Play or Stories for Boys, was being passed around. The play had just premiered at Humana a couple months earlier, and that script had a profound impact on me and my writing. Cut, cut to a couple months later, I just moved to Los Angeles and was looking for work. The theater at Boston Court in Pasadena was producing Dark Play, and they were looking for a company manager. I immediately applied and interviewed for the job. I couldn't believe that somebody was doing this play I had just read. When they learned I knew the play and had just met Carlos a couple months earlier, they hired me. I ended up working for that theater for close to 10 years. I ended up going to grad school because I met Luis Alfaro while working there. I was originally hired to do this podcast because I knew the people from LA Stage Alliance through that job. I'm not there anymore, but I am here, a playwright in Chicago, running a theater and teaching classes, all because of the experience of that other theater, in a position I never would have gotten if not for the Carlos Connection. So I told him all that, and then I hit record, and our conversation is what came next. Not uncommon where someone says something like that, you know, where like this like little thing that seems not particularly consequential in my own life turns out to be actually fairly consequential right. in other people's lives, which is great. Yeah. Uh, and then I always think about my own experience of like people who had a huge influence on my own trajectory mm -hmm. that you know may or may not know like you know the seeds that they planted or like the moment that uh i happened to catch them as you're describing right right uh, having a sort of transformative effect on yeah my life and my journey so that's really i thank you for that story. <laughs> <laughs> well thank you thank you for happening to be there when i when i i guess i needed it i didn't know that i needed it can you think back to when you started exploring the idea of theater mm-hmm 
in your youth? I'm assuming it was in your youth. Maybe that was. As yeah, you know, something. the typical like doing plays in junior high and high school, um, starting off as an actor, and, right? And uh, and I guess uh, the as a the writing sort of came to the fore. Um, I guess kind of around my senior year of high school, um, and I did a, a summer program. I don't know if it still exists, but it was a. Uh, New York State Summer School of the Arts, uh, which um, had uh, various programs for you know high school seniors around uh, the state, and and music and visual art, and there was also a drama program. And the drama program at the time was uh, administered by Circle Repertory Theater, mm-hmm. um, and so I spent the summer there, you know, learning from you know act you know all the disciplines from the folks there, uh, and um, uh, and one of the classes was a playwriting class and. Uh, I found that I really sort of naturally gravitated to that. How and old were you at the time? I was probably like 17. Yeah, I think I was 17. I was summer between junior and senior year of high school, I think. Um, and then uh, and then I sort of hit a crossroads in my uh, early college. Uh, you know, I went to Syracuse for... Um, for acting, uh, which was a <laughs> dreadful mistake, uh, but at the time, and then I uh, did a did a semester at the um, at the O'Neill, the National Theater Institute mm-hmm. up, in, uh, up in Waterford, Connecticut, uh, and again I I took a, a, a playwriting class up there, and it was the first time. I know it sounds really weird, but it was the first time I started to like hear voices and channel voices mm-hmm. of characters rather than sort of being um, you know the kind of puppet master or chess master. Um, uh, and I've, and, uh, suddenly the, you know, the pieces were kind of writing themselves and, uh, kind of like sublimating my own, you know, will and ego and thought into, um, uh, these characters that sort of had a a level of autonomy. And I was like, wow, there's something there that's really exciting. And, um, uh, and then, so it kind of grew from there. Why was Syracuse such a mistake? Uh, I don't know. I think it was, um. I, you know, I, I always think it's interesting when you're 17 and you're kind of faced with that choice of, uh, you know, determining your destiny through mm-hmm. college and right. thinking what you want and need at that particular point. It's in like your the life. first big decision you have. Yeah, in it's the first life, big right? decision, yeah. and um, and I would say, uh, uh, and this is like you know pre-internet, <laughs> um, so a lot of the decision making is based on you know what comes in the catalogs that arrive in your mailbox. Right. Uh, oh yeah. And, um, so I was, you know, I was really, I had done a lot of acting in high school, and I felt that was something that I wanted to pursue. Um, and then just being there, you know, it, it just wasn't quite the right fit. And then also just like being really honest with myself, I sort of realized, uh, that I had a hard, harder time kind of like sublimating myself into being, um, you know, fully present as an actor and always having a kind of eye towards like the bigger thing that was going on around me. Um, you know, how did this, how did this play work? You know, what is this world like? And, um, and that I think is a is not the best asset to have. When no, you're it's I, I relate to that in some to some extent because I remember as an as an actor in my twenties, uh, doing one side of my brain is doing the play as I'm instructed and uh-huh. as I recall the lines and the blocking, and the other side is actually saying what is going on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Rather than like exploring another world, uh-huh. I'm my brain. My other side of my brain is going. You don't know what this play is about. Right. You don't even know what you're doing. You're uh-huh. just like a trained monkey right now. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And that that's actually what drew me out of out of being a performer. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't fully give over that was a, yeah. that was a thing and then so um so it seemed, you know, that uh writing made more sense, you know, where you could kind of do both where you're you're sort of like sublimating your own uh will into the, you know, the sort of individual wills of your characters and 
you know, they take a kind of life on their own, but then also you can sort of look at it from 10,000 feet and shape it and craft it into something that's a, you know, a well-told story. And a, um, so, uh, so yeah, that was a kind of, that felt like a natural transition for me. Had you been expressing yourself uh, through the written word before you took that very first playwriting class? Yeah, you know, I always wrote like, Dumb poems, yeah, and, you yeah. know, uh, uh, stories and that sort of thing. But, um, but uh, in terms of like actually completing anything or feeling like I'd written something that was um, viable on its own, that you know, it was really the playwriting that seemed to make the most sense. Mm-hmm. What was it about the playwriting? Um, I think it was a sense of uh, part of it is that sense of surprise. And again, it was. I remember. I remember pretty clearly, like what at, at the O'Neill you know, at the National Theater Institute back then, like when I was writing, I, be, I became kind of fixated and obsessed with, uh, with this play. And it's a, you know, it's a silly play, but at the time it felt like very, very powerful and pertinent and, um, and it really consumed, uh, 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 you know, a huge amount of my time while I was there at the expense of everything else mm-hmm. that I was supposed to be studying. Mm-hmm. So it, it uh, uh, the, that feeling of, you know, being obsessed and trying to figure out, you know, where these characters were taking me and where the world was taking me. And, um, and then hearing it with, you know, I would get uh, some of the other students together to sort of read chunks of it and segments of it. And, um, it seemed to really groove with them. So, uh, that was exciting. Um, all the stuff that, you know, when Mm -hmm. you're starting out that, uh, points you in the direction of wanting to do that. Did you ever go back to school? Uh, no, I didn't. Uh, my sort of, I, <laughs> I kind of describe my journey as the, uh, I, I did a kind of like medieval apprenticeship. Mm-hmm. So after, uh, after doing the semester at the O'Neill, I went to New York and, um, and I, uh, sort of picked up on my circle rep contacts, uh, to get an internship there. Um, and, uh, so I spent a year, uh, doing, uh, uh, stage management internship. I know that sounds really weird mm-hmm. you know, for a player, but I figured that was a really good way to kind of understand um, everything about how theater is made and, sure. and put together. Um, and at the time, of course, Circle Rep was sort of the home for a lot of great new American plays. And so seeing plays in process and um, uh, and the kind of illuminating thing that happens when you're young and you realize, oh my God, they're still working on this and previews and mm-hmm. making changes and cuts and edits and wow, that's much better, you know, that they've, do, you know, that, that the writer did this or that uh, to sort of move move the thing forward. Uh, so I did a year there, and then um, and then uh, I did another internship at New York Theater Workshop, and that was in the artistic office. This is like in the early '90s, um, and then I spent two years in the literary office of the Public Theater. Um, uh, and where I was, uh, uh, my I was uh, my mentor Morgan Janess was uh, running the office at the time. It was just after George Wolf took over mm-hmm. uh, uh, the public, um, and uh, and so that was kind of like my uh, my grad school, I guess. You know, sort of being uh, in those rooms and at those theaters and kind of uh, learning how theater was made, and then just seeing a lot of stuff in town and. Um, and then also I was taking, uh, workshops with a variety of different writers. So I, um, studied with, uh, Maria Irene Fornes, uh, she used to do mm. workshops around New York. Um, and I, uh, uh, did one at, um, theater for, uh, oops, sorry, uh, at theater for, uh, a new audience or no, theater for the new city. I'm sorry. Um, in downtown. And, um, and then I was part of the, uh, emerging writers group at the public that Eduardo Machado, uh, mm-hmm. ran at the time. Um, and so, yeah, all of those things kind of coalesced together and was my, were you, my, you, were you writing this whole time while you're in these internships at, yeah, yeah, I was, I was kind of a closet writer. I didn't, you know, cause I was, you're around all these people who actually do it and are, you know, getting productions and, um, and seem very skilled at what they do. And so I was, you know, at night I would go to my little, you know, 
one you know one room apartment and crank stuff out. Uh, and then actually, it was a uh, an interesting moment. We were talking about we were talking before about sort of like life changing moments. Um, I was uh, when I was interning at New York Theater Workshop. I ended up getting an assistantship with. Um, uh, the director Robert Woodruff, mm-hmm. and he had gotten a, this grant that was a sort of director's grant to be in residence at a theater in, in New York, and he was in residence at New York Theater Workshop at the time, um, and he was looking for someone to just you know do research for him, and uh, and I was like I'll do it, you know. Um, uh, so uh, we you know he would basically I would show up at his apartment and he'd say hey look for this play this book this thing and whatever and uh, and then come back in a couple of days and mm-hmm. you know we'll sit and talk about it all. And so I'd bring him, you know, periodically I'd bring him, like, stacks of stuff that I found in the library. And uh, and then one day I slipped my very first play <laughs> into the stack. Uh, I was kind of too timid to ask him to read it. And I just thought, well. That's still a big, it's a bold move, though, right? Yeah, I was, I was really nervous. I'm like, I'm going to put this in here. He's going to think I'm, you know, whatever. Uh, uh, and then, uh, and it was so cool because, like, two days later he called me. He's like, hey, I read your play. Uh, and I was like, oh, my God, Robert Woodruff read my play. Um, uh, and then we had a great conversation about it, and, um, and that gave me a lot of confidence uh, to, to, you know, he, he had great thoughts about it. And, um, and, uh, and then that sort of spurred me on to my next play. And then, uh, but, yeah, that was one of those moments, that, like we were talking about before, that, yeah. that, that somebody out of the blue kind of, you know, gives you the jump start that, yeah. uh, that you need early on. I've heard a lot about the Fornes workshops mm-hmm. you know I, as i mentioned i studied with uh luis alfaro in yeah. grad school and that was um an important part of his because he he similarly didn't go through the traditional college path mm-hmm. to get to where he is and he studied with uh fornes as well and i have always been so like just enamored with this idea and that like these these workshops sound like incredibly beautiful experiences but they are these mystical ideas to me Mm-hmm. Can you can you like uh, take me inside the room a little bit? Yeah, I mean they were incredible, um, and and I think you know, uh, and I would say that like in my own teaching now because I've been here for a long time here at the theater school, um, that certainly the kind of roots of my own teaching um, uh, go way back when. But I I don't know I I I sort of I, I sort of shudder at the at the word mysticism in relation to it. There is something you know very powerful and and uh, uh, kind of. Uh, you know, it's the, the, her approach really sort of did create that feeling that you were channeling material, and so I could understand uh, uh, people assigning that that word to what she did. But I think, in a lot of ways, what her her approach was just incredibly practical um, mm-hmm. in terms of thinking about uh, uh, you know the idea that the characters you're writing have physical bodies <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and that their voices and their thoughts and their um, uh, you know their wants and uh, obstacles, all those sort of like one-on-one things that we think of uh, in playwriting are are really rooted in kind of understanding the physicality of of uh, of the character. Uh, and um, so, in that sense, I think uh, you know uh, there is a there is a sort of uh, there was a sort of like um, uh, there was an imaginative space that she was able to bring uh, her students. Where really surprising things uh, would happen, and uh, um, but ultimately it comes down to really sort of apprehending that that very uh, kind of uh, core notion that um, we're all you know physical beings, and that uh, the language that we use uh, really stems from that that mm-hmm. physicality. So um, uh, in that sense, um, uh, yeah, I think it's uh, you know it was, it, there was an incredible practicality to it. Um, it also sort of uh, 
works to get your kind of intellectual brain off the radar for a period of time, and especially in the early phases of writing, mm. um, where uh, you, you know you tap into um, impulses that uh, that uh, you know you your intellectual mind wouldn't necessarily gravitate mm -hmm. to immediately, um, and uh, and then from that you know form and shape and uh, you know um, uh, that content arises from you know allowing yourself to take a bath in that mess for a little bit mm -hmm. and. Um, uh, uh, but yeah, there were, you know, she, she she's incredible. Um, uh, and, um, uh, there was a, uh, you know, she'd have her little packets of photographs of old photographs that she'd find in junk shops and mm. sort of distribute them and, uh, kind of talk to you in a, uh, uh, I, I, hypnotic is too, too, uh, again, mystical, I think, but the, but sort of like, uh, hypnotize you a little bit into imagining these bodies in space and then. Um, and then language kind of organically emerging from there. Um, and, uh, I would say the, uh, the, the, you know, at the end of the, every workshop you kind of would leave like, wow, where did that come from? That's mm. such a strange, you know, um, uh, strange territory. Um, and then, you know, what, what I kind of learned from it is that, oh yeah, those are, those are sort of the, uh, the kind of, that's the play that's sort of dying to crawl out, <laughs> you right. know? Um, and then allowing yourself to sort of follow those characters to where they, where they wanted to take you is, uh, really the, uh, the, the key to the whole thing. Um, and, uh, and I think that it sort of lends itself to really kind of exploring form in interesting ways. I mean, her plays are, you know, you look at her body of work and, um, uh, there's really no one like her in terms right. of, of yeah. the kinds of plays and the shapes those plays take and, uh, the structures she's playing with and, um, but uh, and I just direct last year I directed one of her plays here in Chicago, uh, uh, One of the Night, which is an incredible play, um, and uh, and it was so cool to work with actors on it because there's so much that's oblique in the play, there's so much that's unspoken, and so much that's sort of um, uh, you know uh, uh, shouldn't work narratively, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but yet if you really engage with the words and and how those connect to the physical body of the actor. Um, so much of what's unwritten becomes apparent, and uh, and it's really powerful. It's so exciting to sort of say, "Oh, she wrote that in there," even though there's no, you know, uh, exposition pointing to that, or no sort of like plot point pointing to that. But that's that's what's happening in this moment, and it's totally thrilling. Um, and so, yeah, uh, to those that was a hugely influential um, piece. And then studying with Eduardo too at this around the same time, who was also a student of Irene's. Um, uh, really all point to that idea of, uh, you know, the physical life of the character and uh, and um, how they're driven by impulses that are entirely their own. Do you recall the first play or plays that emerged from this study? Um, what I, I was writing a play uh, called <laughs> called Near Death Experiences with Lenny Riefenstahl. Uh, it's not about Lenny Riefenstahl at all, but it was a um, it was a, a play about the small town in. Um, in the Western desert in Egypt, which I had visited several years before I had, uh, I had studied with her. And, um, uh, and so, yeah, that was, that play came out of that. It was a kind of a wild, weird, um, strange, uh, uh, strangers in a small town coming together and creating chaos play. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so as you, uh, continued through the early nineties and the early parts of your career. Mm -hmm. Do you, do you recall the moment when you felt like things were coming together for you where you were sort of like 
finding your voice? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I would say, yeah, I would say, uh, so this is, a, like, everything I've described up to now is, like, between 92 and, like, 94. Uh, and then 95 was, like, uh, a really big year for me. I was working at the public, and um, and then uh, a bunch of opportunities came up that, uh, that you know, because you start submitting stuff and whatever. Uh, and so I was offered a drum fellowship at the Playwright Center mm-hmm. in Minneapolis, um, which was my first sort of big external uh, 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 career boost. I'd done some stuff, you know, in the downtown scene in New York. Mm-hmm. My first play, we did a small little production at a space called Nada, which uh, doesn't exist anymore, <laughs> but was kind of like a key, you know, small basement theater. Right. In the downtown New York, the- New York th- the theater scene in the in the early nineties, and um, uh, and then I got the Jerome, and uh, and then also the um, uh, that same summer I was invited to the Hispanic Playwrights Project at South Coast Rep uh, mm-hmm. with another play, uh, and so suddenly I was like, oh wow, people are paying attention to my work, right. and, and that was super exciting. So I spent a year at the, at the Jerome uh, at the uh, Playwright Center in Minneapolis. Uh, which was a huge growth year, and um, uh, and um, and then stuff started happening from that. So, yeah. So the Jerome sounds like a big, it was a big moment. Yeah, it was a huge right? moment. It was yeah. an incredible year. I mean, it was uh, the my fellow Jeromes were Daniel Alexander Jones, Naomi Azuka, Bridget Carpenter, Ruth Margraff, and uh, it was like an amazing crew of writers to be around for uh, for that year. Um, and then also just a lot of uh, wonderful opportunities emerged from there, for sure. How did you feel about leaving New York, though? You, <coughs> you grew up in New York, right? Yeah, it was tough. Um, you know, and it's funny because uh, uh, it's sort of like I've, I've left New York twice. Um, uh, so I was, you know, I grew up in the suburbs and um, and spent a lot of my teenage years, you know, taking the train to the city and kind of like being part of, you know, uh, the New York scene and um, – uh, so it was really difficult for uh, for to to vacate because I had a really cool job. I was working at the public, and um, and uh, but then I was like, well, I could you know do this literary thing, uh, which will probably kill me over time, mm-hmm. <laughs> or I can sort of you know shift my focus and really focus on playwriting. Uh, and so the drum was a great opportunity for that to be able to set that aside mm-hmm. and, and and leave. Um, and I guess I was a little short sighted then because I felt like okay, I'll do the year and then come back to New York, um, which I did and. Uh, and, um, uh, and, uh, but, uh, yeah. And then, and then I spent a couple more years there and then we moved from New York to Chicago in 2000. Uh, so, um, uh, uh, and then, you know, I still have a lot of connections there and I was a member of New Dramatists for a number of years and, uh. Um, and, well, and I guess what you learn when you're away from it is that it, it's always there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you said we moved to Chicago. Oh, yeah, my wife, Lisa Portes. And when did you meet Lisa? We met on a production. Um, there was a theater There's a theater company in New York uh, that went defunct but is now back um, uh, called On Guard Arts, uh, which was run by Annie Hamburger. And um, On Guard Arts was kind of a uh, legendary company in the 80s and 90s that did a lot of really cool site-specific work around New York City. Mm-hmm. And they produced, uh, uh, you know, a lot of Ann Bogart stuff and Chuck Meese stuff and um, and Res Abdo stuff and uh, would always find these really incredible sites around New York City. Uh, the last piece that they produced was a piece called The Secret History of the Lower East Side, um, which took place in on the rooftop of the Seward Park High School, uh, which is down mm-hmm. in the Lower East Side. Uh, and um, uh, I had been commissioned along with two other writers, Peter Yulian and uh, Alice Tuan, uh, to write this sort of, it's kind of a tour, um, 
where there were three monologues, one written by each of us, kind of representing different aspects of the neighborhood, and then these kind of tertiary pieces around uh, that would sort of bridge each of the each of the monologue pieces. So the audience was divided into three and kind of moved through uh, this uh, sort of crazy odyssey. Um, and that was the last thing that they produced because uh, 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 I think it was partly a function, I think, of uh, the sort of real estate boom in New York in the late mm-hmm. 90s. And uh, um, anyway, so uh, Lisa was um, uh, had uh, one of those TCG director fellowships at the time. And she was good friends with the director, a guy named Matt Wilder. They went to grad school together. Um, so as part of her TCG, she's like, I'll come observe. And, uh, and, um, and that's, how, that's how we met. Although we had a lot of people in common, right? Uh, and a sort of uh, 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 we knew about each other for years and years and years, but that was where um, things sort of came to a head, as it were. And so, what year was that? That was uh, that was ninety. When was that? That was ninety eight because we were married in ninety nine. Yeah, so it was about a year before we were married. It was fall of fall of nineteen ninety eight. So you had already gone to Minneapolis. To yes. Returned to New York at this point. Yes. And then you found Lisa. Yes. Yes. So, uh, you know, in theater circles, we're always talking about everything in relation to New York, Uh whether we like it or not, (laughs) right? Uh, That sort of seems to be a default here. And as I'm new to Chicago and having a lot of conversations with Chicago, that's sort of uh, uh, a subject to not bring up, Uh I've learned. (laughs) The identity is very strong here in this town, and rightfully so. The theater theater scene is amazing. And I'm wondering... When you made that decision to come here, what was that feeling? What was the motivation? And was there a feeling of, uh, I'm leaving New York, like the mecca of uh, the world of theater behind? Well, I mean, um, at the time it was tricky because, uh, um, again, you know, I was, I was uh, like New York is a little bit of an addiction, you know, where you, you live there and you feel like your identity is wrapped up in the place as if the city actually cares you're there. <laughs> uh, but, it, uh, uh, but you know, you kind of, you have your relationships and your, you know, your community there. Um, so it was tricky. And, and, you know, when we came here, it was very much a, like, let's try it out for a year and see. Um, and then life, you know, sort of happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, uh, um, so it was, it was tough at first, but, um, uh, but the, you know, the community here is amazing and there's a lot of really great work happening. Uh, and again, New York is, uh, always there and, um, uh, and it's just a question of sort of sustaining, you know, the relationships that you have there. So, mm-hmm. um, uh, and, uh, yeah, so, um. What was the motivator to come to Chicago? Uh, well, Lisa got the gig here t- uh, teaching in the directing program, and uh, I was like, okay, I'll, well, I'm, I was a little sick in New York at the time. I'll go. We'll see what happens. Mm-hmm. And then I was hired on as visiting, and then then that turned into a tenure track position, and um, and yeah, so that's that's how it went. So it just stuck. It just stuck. Yeah. Wow. I'm curious about uh, having been in a in a relationship with another theater maker. Uh-huh. Uh, when you tell that to other theater makers, the response who other theater makers who aren't in those relationships, the uh-huh. response is that must be hard, <laughs> right? That's what I always heard. And so when I hear uh, a partnership between a playwright and a director, uh-huh. my assumption is that must be easy, right? Because there's like a yin and a yang. There's like sort of like these two go together, like chocolate and peanut butter. Yeah, um, that's an interesting question. I mean, it's funny because it the first show we did in Chicago, uh, uh, we did together, and it was a play of mine called uh, Offspring of the Cold War, and it was Lisa's first show here in Chicago. It was a small company called Walkabout Theater. And when was it? That was like 2000, 
one, two thousand two, I think two thousand two, and um, uh, and it was it was a tough process. Um, like, well, like all kind of small theater is a tough process, but right. uh, uh, we we uh, at the time we had a harder time seeing eye to eye in terms of our uh, our approach. And so it was a little bit stressful. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and so after that, it was a good production and, you know, it was well-reviewed and all that. Uh, but we kind of uh, resolved, like, well, maybe we should, you know, figure out this marriage thing a little longer before Was the we... work coming home? Uh, it was coming home. Yeah. And, uh, and, uh, uh, and uh, uh, so we were both like, you know, okay, we learned a lot in this process and, um, and we should probably hold off until, you know, for a while to work together again. Right. Uh, and then we worked together again. Uh, when was it? It was actually in the writing of, um, of Dark Play. We were both out at uh, UC uh, Santa Barbara. Uh, Naomi Ozuki used to run the program out there and she had this summer workshop where she'd bring professional artists to come work with the students. Um, and... Uh, uh, and I kind of went there with nothing. I, I kind of knew, like, the territory I wanted to explore with the students. And eventually, and then while I was there, I wrote Dark Play really, really fast. Um, uh, to, it was like the first draft took me, like, six days to write. Um, and Lisa sort of spearheaded the workshop that led to that. Um, and, uh, uh, and so that was a really great experience. Um, and then the opportunity just didn't come up until very recently, um, uh, I'm working on a play for Children's Theater Company in Minneapolis um, called "I Come from Arizona," and which is w- w- based on an earlier play of mine uh, called "Augusta Noble," but it's a very new, very different uh, version of that play. Um, and CTC commissioned it last year, and um, it's been kind of a fast track to get it ready for um, an opening this coming fall. Uh, and then uh, Lisa had directed the earlier version of that play at um, Chicago Playworks here at the theater school in the fall. Uh, so it just seemed like a natural fit for her to do the project. Mm-hmm. So we actually were in the room for the first time together because uh, I'd done a bunch of workshops on my own with Peter and the staff there um, uh, over the fall and in January. And then uh, just last uh, couple of weeks ago, uh, we were up in Minneapolis working out and she was in the room. And so it was the first time we were mm-hmm. in the room in that capacity in quite a while. But it was great. Uh, and super exciting. You mentioned dark play. And yeah. I, I was saying to you before I hit record, uh, my my relationship to that play and how it came to me in a seminal moment of my life. And I worked on what was, I think, the second production or third yeah, production of it at Boston Court in Pasadena. And I remember at the time, uh, I didn't know... I was working as the company manager mm-hmm. at the time, and I didn't know that the play was based on a true on true events. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then about halfway through the run of the show, um, the artistic director sent me the it was Vanity Fair or mm-hmm. was it Vanity Fair yeah, article? Yeah. The Vanity Fair article that that um, I guess inspired you. Mm-hmm. And I remember we had a big debate about the marketing of that play uh-huh. because it was specifically not marketed as ba- like I'm I'm using air quotes based on a true story right, based right. on real events. And our debate was really around should we should they have should the company have mm-hmm. leaned into that more? Is that a a, a pro or con? Would it have helped? Would it have hurt? Mm-hmm. Um, sales and I'm curious if you had any influence on that or if that was important to you or made a difference to you no I don't, that never really came up in conversation I mean um, uh, uh, yeah I mean does it feel what you ended up writing does it feel like it was close or based on what initially inspired you or did it go I mean it sort of operates in the uh, uh, the sort of contours of the of the true story um, in the way that like you know law and order episodes are sort of <laughs> based on you know sure, events yeah. that you that are sort of ripped from the headlines 
um, uh, I always found that play the marketing that plays always been interesting because I found that companies that have it's been produced a fair amount and companies that sort of focus their marketing on the kind of like internet cautionary tale versus the kind of messed up love virtual love story yeah um, uh, that the when we focus on the love story aspect of it it tends to be more kind of visceral and and um, and what the play is really about uh, in some ways. Um, uh, and that in some, in some ways the kind of, uh, the, the, uh, if I can say the sort of power of that piece really has to do with, um, the kind of adolescent coming of age and trying to figure out what love means, Mm -hmm. um, as opposed to Mm -hmm. like, thou shalt be very careful on the internet, um, which we all know, and it's not really a story. Um, uh, uh, to me, that's more interesting when it's looked at from that right. perspective. Right, but then these events, these catfishing stories, and this mm-hmm. this happened before the. I never heard the term catfishing until several years right, right, right. later. But here in 2007, uh, the internet was still. We weren't really sure what we had. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was this weird other world. Right, right, right. At least for those of us who didn't work in technology, mm-hmm, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember at the time thinking. Oh, this play is only relevant today. Uh huh. Uh huh. I remember having that thought back then. Yeah. It's only relevant right now because the technology is changing. Yeah, and yeah. And very shortly after this is when social media uh-huh. took off, and uh, and then this whole idea of catfishing came about. And I and I think that's I think that's sort of the um, cult, the the culture needs to hang their uh, familiarity on something. Or sorry, they need to create something familiar uh-huh. in order to connect it to the yeah, piece, yeah, yeah. which is deeply about something else. Uh-huh, uh-huh. But you need to hold the hand of the audience in some way. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. I think it's also interesting because because like if you look at the piece now, it's like incredibly dated, um, and I don't mind that, you know. And it still gets produced at colleges, and and you know, it's been a bunch of European productions of it. Um, and I think the it's kind of uh, if it has any staying power, it's more about the relationships and mm-hmm. uh, and what transpires uh, with this uh, you know uh, young character kind of navigating uh, uh, emotions he really doesn't quite apprehend or know how to deal with mm-hmm. um uh but you know you look at some of the references and it's like oh this is very 2007 sure but yeah. yet it still seems to resonate with folks so that's exciting if i remember correctly the play has one stage direction in it i think so yeah and it, it's they kiss yeah i think something like that yeah i haven't looked at it in a very very long time uh that's weird that i have that, <laughs> that memory but uh i want to talk about uh your relationship to stage directions uh-huh. and we're not just with, with dark play, but mm. in general and, uh, and then how you teach that. Um, stage directions. That's interesting. There was a period where I like avidly refused to write stage directions cause, um, I just wanted to, you know, uh, uh, make sure that, uh, that everything was on the line. You know what I mean? Um, and that, and the lines, and the spoken lines, and that the implications of the physicality of what's going on is present in in what's being spoken. Um, and it's interesting having seen a bunch of productions of that particular play. Uh, there are certain times where, like, there's certain scenes that, like, oh, that's like staged almost identically to like that other version mm-hmm. that I saw, um, which is fun because there's not there's no sort of explanation of how it should be staged in, in the play. Um, so anything of you know. Shakespeare, there's no stage directions in Shakespeare, but it's abundantly, you know, physical and, mm-hmm. and um, uh, the dynamics of the scenes are so uh, rich. So um, so to me, it's, uh, it's um, uh, you know, uh, there was a period where I was like 
avidly against writing them. I'm a little bit less uh, strict about that now. Like, you know, I come from Arizona, has a ton of stage directions. Um, and, uh, uh, um, but still, uh, but, and then in terms of my teaching, you know, uh, I do it to my second years and it drives them a little bit nuts, but I, I have like, like four very simple rules when I ask them to write assignments. And number one is like, you're limited to one stage direction. And part of it is so that they have, um, <laughs> they're not leaning against that. Cause I, some, I feel like sometimes, uh, it's easy to lean on a stage direction to to sort of make something happen, but how do you make it? Uh, how do you make the physicality of the world you're writing so apparent in what's happening um, in the text that uh, that um, it's unmistakable? Because you know you always hear the stories of directors kind of crossing out stage directions and making up their own. Uh, uh, but how do you make that foolproof? You know, how do you make that so embedded in the text that there's no other way to um, sort of conceive of, of what's uh, transpiring? And I remember when I was at Jerome, actually, uh, Susan Laurie Parks taught a little workshop uh, with um, with the folks there. And uh, um, and there's something she said. I forget, I forget what the context was, but she was describing – because she doesn't use a whole lot of stage directions either in her plays. Um, uh, but she was describing, you know, uh, you can write, you know uh, – character grabs other person's sweater, right, um, which is fine. But you can also write, hey, let go of my goddamn arm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Which makes it an unmistakable physical act that's, that's yeah. present in the in That the you play. can't avoid. You can't cross that out. You can't cross that out. You can't. Uh, uh, it's, 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 um, it's a fact on the ground that, um, that you have to contend with. I've always found the, uh, the new writer's apprehension – with this Mm -hmm. so there's this fear that my point isn't going to come across unless i say specifically in a stage direction that they that this and that happens and it's such a leap of faith for a new writer to to take to just trust that if they put it in the text if it's Mm -hmm. in the dialogue yeah yeah. it's in the play yeah and it and it's a a total every time i uh, like write that on the board on the first assignment (laughs) with my second year playwrights they, you know, there's inevitably a groan, like, wait, what do you mean? How do you do that? I'm like, well, just see what happens. If Can can you convey this world with that? And then by the end of the semester, they realize the power and value of that of that mm. particular instruction. So. so using dark play as an example again, the stage direction of the kiss, is that because that moment is so important and so crucial? If it's the only stage direction, it will not be ignored? I don't know if it had that in- level of intentionality to it, um, uh, but yeah, I mean, uh, uh, um, it was less like a willful thing. Like this is, you know, uh, this is supremely important that this uh, this be done. But um, there was just something about the uh, like making it as clean as possible on mm-hmm. the page, and um, and uh, so uh, yeah, it just came out that way, I guess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Being new to Chicago mm-hmm. uh, and not having the relationship to the community and not having, I guess, the deep understanding of uh, the different theaters and uh, the different stakeholders in town and whatnot, it was uh, it was remarkable to me to see the community respond to American Theater Company closing mm-hmm. so suddenly. Uh, I moved. That's the neighborhood I moved to when I moved to town, and I had just interviewed Basil Kremendahl shortly before the company closed. So I was just exposed to this company and I was just exposed to Will Davis's work for the first time. And I was so excited that this is where I live. Like Mm -hmm. I'm walking to this this theater and I saw that your play was the next one coming up. And that was very exciting to Mm -hmm. me, this person that I knew. Um, 
and then it closed so suddenly and um it was amazing to me to see the 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 response to it uh, but because I don't have the the understanding of the um, I guess the relationship of that company and these artists to the town, um, it didn't have the same kind of emotional punch to me. So I'm kind of like experiencing it through everybody mm-hmm. else in a way. So I'm wondering uh, how that information came to you, and was it as was it as shocking to you as it seemed to be to everybody else in town? I think the outcome was shocking. I mean, Will had contacted me uh, several weeks before. Uh, the announcement of the closing that, um, you know, the uh, the theater was in financial trouble and it looked like that they weren't going to be able to follow through on the production of Diagram, uh, which, of course, is disappointing. But um, uh, and but, I you know, my sense of that theater and again, I don't know the inside scoop, but uh, said historically they had had financial issues. And um, uh, uh, so uh, uh, after that call in the back of my mind, like I sensed that it was a possibility that it would, um, that it would, uh, uh, cease operations. Um, but of course, hopeful that, uh, that the board would step up and, uh, that the community would step up and, and really get behind Will, uh, who's a remarkable artist in person. Um, and, uh, um, and so when the news broke, it wasn't terribly surprising, but I was, um, I was actually a little disappointed in, uh, in uh i mean the reaction was was um was truthful and honest but i felt like the the theater could have gone a little further to uh give will a fairer shake mm-hmm. um uh you know it, it uh, hiring will i think was a very clear message that the theater was going to take a uh turn from where it had been going under uh the previous leadership uh and i think a riskier turn um uh, uh, and I, I think it's unfortunate that, uh, they didn't give it time to, um, to, uh, uh, develop properly and, and, um, and, uh, uh, give Will a couple of seasons to really, um, uh, point the theater in that new direction and, and find success and, and find a space in this, uh, theater ecosphere that would be, uh, yeah. successful and, and, um, uh, and so, you know, the, I think, I think there was a, I think there was a, uh, I think there was a lot of, um, I, I, yeah, I think it was, I think it was hugely unfortunate and, um, uh, and I wish that, um, you know, uh, critics might've been more supportive of the work that Will was doing and, um, and, uh, that the board could have been more supportive. Again, I, I don't know what was going on on the inside. So, you know, that's a, a, certainly an external, uh, viewpoint, but, um, but, uh, my feeling is that if you were going to hire someone of Will's caliber and also Will's like, uh, you know, wildly inventive theatrical um, uh, uh, way of uh, creating work that um, you have to give that time and space to really grow and burgeon uh, and um, become what it uh, could have become. Mm-hmm. What do you see, or how would you describe the uh, the relationship between the Chicago theater press and the Chicago theater scene? Um <laughs> That's a tricky one. I mean, I think it's it's uh, like any any place. I think there's always a, a, a kind of love hate relationship between <laughs> the critics and the community. I think what's unique about Chicago, and I think uh, cool about Chicago, is that the um, uh, the critics do see a wide scope of work, uh, and certainly a wider scope of work than they'll see in New York or see in other cities. You know, so. 
Um, they'll, you know, the big papers will go see the obvious stuff like, you know, stuff that's happening at Steppenwolf and Goodman, but they'll also, you know, uh, uh, walk into those small basement theaters and see smaller companies, uh, uh, that are operating on, you know, shoestring budgets, um, and sort of deal with it as a level playing field in some ways. Um, uh, but you know, uh, 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 it's, uh, I, I yeah. Uh, Do you find value in, in criticism? I think there's value. I think there's value in, in the idea that there's a, uh, uh, that it's, that, that, uh, you know, it's part of the, uh, it's kind of a key part of the ecosphere here. I mean, I think that, um, you know, uh, if, if certain critics write certain things about, uh, uh, you know, positively about certain, certain stuff that's happening here in Chicago, people around the country pay attention, which I don't think a whole lot of other cities can lay claim to. Um, so I think that's a good thing. Um, I think that, uh, you know, we could certainly use for, uh, and there's a big movement, uh, for this among artists in the city to have, you know, more diverse voices in the critical seat. Um, uh, which I think uh, would be certainly helpful and certainly a conversation worth having. Um, but I think it's also, you know, it's uh, we're very lucky, you know, that a lot of cities don't have um, uh, a supportive critical establishment that's, um, regardless of what they end up saying about the work, uh, are ultimately, I think, uh, champions of the scene and uh, and the community. Um, and uh, certainly a lot of artists in the city have benefited from it, for sure. So do people, do non-theater makers, when I say people, do non-theater making people in Chicago consume the criticism? I would assume so. Otherwise, uh, you know, everyone would be out of a job. <laughs> well, does it, does it actually drive... Does it drive traffic? I mean, I I have no no you know data to prove one way or another, but I would sense that yes, um, uh, to some degree that you know folks pay attention. Um, you know, it depends on the scale. I think the Tribune certainly has reach, and people pay attention to what's going on there. But you know, is that a measurable thing? I you know I can't answer that. I mean, the only reason I even ask is because I spent so many years in Los Angeles in, in that community and seeing. Uh, what little it drives mm -hmm. in the, even when the lead uh, critic of the LA times is coming to review your piece and it's uh, positive. It doesn't always drive anything mm -hmm. uh, because I don't think there's a strong, um, strong base of people consuming this criticism. Right. <laughs> yeah. I think that's probably, I mean, I, yeah, I could see that in LA for sure. Um, I think, I, I think, I think it's, uh, it does reach more people here. I mean, I've certainly like when stuff has been written about my work, you know, I've certainly gotten like weird emails from people, you know, who go to, um, uh, whose children go to the same school that my kids mm -hmm. go to. And they're like, Oh, I saw your name on the paper today. Like that's oh, so you read the theater section. Interesting. So your kids are growing up in a theater family. Uh -huh. Are they, are they emerging as theater people themselves? My, my son, no, my son's a musician. He plays drums. He's going to be 13 in October. Uh, and he's really fallen in love with uh, with playing the drums. He's quite good at it. Um, my daughter is interested in theater, and she's done a lot of plays at her school. And uh, this past uh, uh, this past, I guess it was February, uh, she was she played the witch in um, uh, in Into the Woods. Uh, and Lisa and I went to go see it. We both kind of looked at each other, like, "Oh no, she's actually quite good." <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and she was really good. And I'm going to say that because she was, she's my daughter, but, uh, but, you know, she really, uh, embodied that character in, in, um, uh, 
in ways more sophisticated and and fully fully evolved than you would expect from your average fourteen year old. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she loves it, um, but she also is, uh, has an interest in writing and other things. And um, but they both have artistic bents, so uh, and their parents do so. You know, if they pursue any of those paths, we can't really say no. <laughs> yeah, we're. Uh... Were your, was your family encouraging of your pursuit when you were a kid? Generally speaking, yeah. I mean, um, uh, my dad was, you know, do what you do, what you love. I mean, he uh, very clear about like, you know, what you're pursuing is difficult and challenging and not many people, uh, you know, can, can, uh, you know, build sustainable lives from it, which was true. Um, but, uh, I never felt like they were pushing me towards anything other than whatever it was that I was interested mm-hmm. in pursuing. I'm lamenting the fact that I'm not going to see diagram of a paper airplane. Me too. <laughs> Can we talk about it a little bit in lieu of being able to go and sit in a theater and watch it? Sure. I mean, it's it's so disappointing because we had assembled such a such a great cast, and um, and Bonnie Metzger was directing it, who's uh, someone that I've known for years and years. Uh, she was at the public when I was there years and years ago, so I was super mm-hmm. thrilled to work with her on it. Um, and, uh, 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 yeah. So what, what's the question? <laughs> uh, so what's the play about? Play is about. And that's such a lame way to start off. But, sure. But I'm, I'm curious, uh, what set you off? What was the idea that set you off in the journey that ended up becoming that play? Um, uh, well, first the play is, uh, the first play in a trilogy of plays, um, called the Javier plays, uh, which was published, uh, by 53rd state press a couple years ago. Um, and, uh, so, uh, diagram is the first sequentially in that series of plays and the, the last chronologically. Um, and it centers around, uh, the death of, uh, Javier C, who's sort of this figure that looms over the, uh, the whole trilogy of, of plays. Um, and, uh, uh, the news of his death circulating among people that he had, uh, been close to about 25 years prior to the beginning of the play. And it sort of starts with this series of phone calls in the middle of the night between these uh, people who are uh, uh, close to him. Uh, and it culminates in, uh, or the first part of the play culminates in them receiving fragments of his final play, um, uh, which are uh, assembled in such a way that it's clear that he's from beyond the grave, he's forcing the hand of these people to come together because um, curiosity. What's the line in the play? Uh, uh, there's a line about curiosity that I can't remember um, that actually appears in all three plays. Uh, but anyway, their curiosity brings them together in this sort of like quasi memorial dinner that they have for him, and which takes place in the second act, um, where they're hoping that this uh, this opus that he left behind will reveal some great mystery that. Uh, uh, has been unanswered from the time when they were close 20, 25 years earlier. Um, so that's the kind of substance of the, of that play. Uh, can you recall the, the specific image or idea that, uh, kickstarted this one? Um, so yeah. So, and it's actually, uh, chronicled in the, in the, um, in the book. I don't know if you've, you've read it at all, but the, uh, in the introduction for the Javier plays, uh, uh, a couple things. So I had just gotten into, uh, so I got into New Dramatists in 2007, um, just after uh, Dark Play premiered at Humana. Uh, and then that summer, I wasn't really sure what I was going to work on next. Uh, so I went to, um, 
I went to spend some time at the church uh, uh, on 44th Street in New Dramatists and, um, you know, spent, you know, camped out up in Seventh Heaven, the, the little uh, sort of rooms that they have for playwrights visiting town. Um, and it was sort of a weird time. And, you know, going back to like the sort of, uh, being in New York and not being in New York, that one of the, uh, that those, that week that I was there, um, I remember thinking a lot about, uh, uh, people who I had been close to when I was living in New York who no longer live there and what happened, uh, to them in different cities, different relationships, et cetera, et cetera, sort of taking them to different places. Um, and then, uh, and then I, while I was sitting on the stoop thinking about this, this very, very old man was walking down 44th street, uh, uh, painfully slowly. Like, mm. you know, he's literally, it was like watching a turtle, you know, uh, cross a highway, but this very old man was walking. And there was just something about that image of like trying to think of him, like, okay, well, he's going to end up at his fourth floor walk up apartment and it's going to take him, you know, an hour and a half to get up the stairs. And then I started thinking about that kind of like, the uh, the sort of loneliness of New York in some ways, and the sort of isolation of New York, as as busy and as chaotic and as vibrant as it is, there also is this like yeah. pervasive loneliness yeah. in the city. And thinking about this very old man walking down, uh, and then that just kind of led to a whole sequence of things that I hadn't thought about in a long time. And and really the uh, and later that night the writing started. I started thinking about this kid I went to high school with and this incident that. Uh, this really sort of humiliating incident that he had experienced. And um, and then suddenly the first line of the play, which was, uh, 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 well, I can't even remember what it is right now, but the first line of the play popped into my head. And then I wrote that and then it just sort of, uh, and then there's this image of this guy in his apartment in New York kind of uh, ruminating on this news that he's just received about um, about the death of his friend. Uh, and then the play just kind of emerged from there. I love that the this goes back to the physicality. Yeah. So the physicality of this person triggered the series of yes, of yes. He was moving really slowly, and it, you know his head was really kind of you know uh, buried close to his chest, and uh, just moving very, very slowly while everything was moving very fast around him. And um, and then that just became uh, that just became that just somehow like led to you know the first image in the play and then the play kind of emerged from there. Mm -hmm. Uh, Are you the, are you the type of writer that feels um, an an urge to be surrounded by uh, a community, like a community of other theater people, collaborators, et cetera? Sometime. And there's a period of time where I was writing a lot of plays starting with actors um, uh, uh, and not writing for a specific ensemble, but that uh, we'd come together and sort of do, um, uh, workshops that would lead to me writing the play, kind of like using a little bit of, um, uh, you know, the uh, when Carol Churchill was part of the joint stock company back in the 70s, they worked that way where mm-hmm. they would, you know, do these sort of developmental workshops before anything was actually written um, that would lead to the writing of plays. So uh, in the kind of mid, in, from like 2000 to about 2006, I wrote like three or four plays that way, um, which I found really fruitful and exciting, kind of changed uh, my writing in a lot of ways. Um, but uh, uh, but I haven't done that in a while. Um, uh, but I do find that coming together with uh, groups of people at various stages in the process, of course, is, is super useful. And, uh, and so, so is the is the DePaul Theater School a community for you? Oh yeah, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, uh, and then the Chicago community, and then I have a New York community, and 
uh, and community sort of seems to happen wherever <laughs> you seem to be working. So. Right. So it seems a lot uh, based on what it is you're working on specifically, what your idea is, mm-hmm. sort of finding the proper home. Yeah. Um, yeah, for, for sure. For sure. Is there anything specific you're working on right now or you, that you're ruminating on at the moment? Uh, well, I'm, I'm finishing up this play for children's theater. Uh, uh, and again, we just had a workshop about a week ago. Um, so I feel like we're pretty close to having something to go into rehearsal with uh, in September. Um, and then I'm working on uh, uh, I got one of those nifty um, OSF uh, American Revolutions Commissions. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've I've been in an extended research phase. <laughs> what's, the, what's the subject? Topic? Uh, it's about um, it's about how do I how do I talk about this without getting into too much detail? Uh, it's about medical quackery and the birth of radio. Um, All right. All right. <laughs> uh, so it's a, it's, it's a cool story. It's, a, it's one of those things where it's a, uh, it's a really interesting historical moment uh, and uh, just trying to figure out a, a unique way of telling it. And um, uh, so, yeah, so I'm in the early stages of that. Mm-hmm. Um, Do you have any plays that you've written that haven't, um, that haven't found life on the stage yet? that you wish could? Um, well, I, my, the dream is for, for the entire Javier trilogy to be done as one single event. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, uh, like marathon style. Yeah. Cause it's three plays. Um, and they're all like stylistically different, but it all tells one particularly particular story. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, so anyone out there listening, that's the dream, <laughs> that's the dream scenario. <laughs> that is a dream scenario. Yes. All right. Well, let's make that happen. Oh, uh, I hope so. Yeah. Um, well, thank you for doing this. this oh, has thanks been for asking a me. Dream for me. I really appreciate it. Oh well, thanks. I appreciate it, and I appreciate the story you told me before we started. So. Yeah. Thanks. All right. Well, good luck, man. Thanks. All right. Thank you to the Theater School of DePaul where we recorded our conversation, and thank you to Carlos for spending this time with me. I really, 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 really appreciate it. Carlos's play, The Diagram of a Paper Airplane, will obviously not be up at the shuttered American Theater Company. But keep your eyes peeled for his work. It is always deep and rich and worth the experience. Thank you to Rob and Deep at American Theater Magazine. Thanks to the band International Pen Pal for allowing us to use their song for the theme. And thanks to you for listening and sharing this podcast. Stay in touch with the subtext on Twitter at Subtext Podcast. And send us an email if you have something to say. The Subtext Podcast at gmail.com. Tune in next month when I perform 4 Minutes, 33 Seconds by John Cage.